<laughs> Welcome everyone to Twig 218, not 2018, 2018. Um, we have uh, Ethan Levy here in the house, unprepped. Hello. Equip. Equip. I'm just going to uh, do yep. funny voices this week. Yeah. Yeah. That would be then, so annoying. Uh, yeah, please don't. Uh, then we have Phil. <laughs> Hi. Who, uh, is, helped me out quite a bit this week with a, a project, with his expertise. He's already adding value to my business. I love That's making PowerPoints. Amazing. I'm always available Thank for PowerPoints. You. Thank you very much. Uh, Laura, she Hello. is fixing her problems with her cup, making all kinds <laughs> of noises. It's been going on for a long time. So she's going to clean it up. I'm gonna clean it uh, up. This 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 podcast. She knows where the mute button is, so she's <laughs> she's learning. To be fair, there's two. We have two. Laura, two this buttons, is yes. really two important. I I need a furniture update. What is your furnishing situation like? Are you living like a human yet? No, I've given no. up. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> Laura, if you're not gonna have a chair, then put some kind of poster on the fucking ceiling, right? Because. It's just you're just against the blank wall here. You're like you're the Don't let them shame your standing up. desk. They well, haven't, if I, if they I stand to the side, then you get a you get kind of a half view of Seattle. Oh, oh it's a beautiful view. place. All right. Look at all that and overcast course, weather. Of course, Eric's in the house. I have a a, a quick rant to begin the podcast cuz I got some feedback about my Armin comments from the powers that be within the deconstructor of fun community. So I'm, I'm going to address that directly in a moment. Um, anyway, we are uh, officially starting a, a registration for the deconstructor of fun event in Istanbul starting on the 9th of February. So that's next week sometime, I believe, 8th of February. Um, and obviously the, the uh, event is going to be the 8th, 9th, and 10th of March. So open registration, be there, be square. We have a insane group of people that are going to be there. It's going to be lots of fun. Um, I'm not drinking, but I'm sure there'll be lots of drinking. Uh, and we'll do a deconstructor of fun podcast at the end of the event is the goal. So we'll have to get some guest speakers because I think it's Laura and I are the only ones that are coming uh, from, from the podcast. <laughs> or Phil, are you coming? Uh, no, but I will be at GDC. I decided to make that trade off this year, and I will definitely right. bring a microphone around. So I'm going to shoot some live, uh, live with Twig at GDC. Oh, get oh, out! I can join great. you, dude. I, I'll be there. Yeah, absolutely. Too. Oh, I'll be bringing and multiple we're microphones. A, a, almost ready to announce the Twig party at uh, GDC. I need to. Uh, I, I, I'm closer to getting confirmation. I got confirmation. I don't have the details yet, but we're going to have a, a deconstructor fun party. Um, you need to be a, a have a pass. It's going to be like an official conference event, but it's going to be cool. Very cool. Um, let's talk about that offline because I think I was talking to the same people, and I guess you took over the reins. Um, all righty. Well, uh, anybody have any good updates that are happening? Anything to talk about? Ooh, we, we have the new... Um, so... <laughs> If you have any thoughts, um, you know, my tea drinking, for example, or any any praises, which is probably less likely, um, we've set up mail at deconstructoroffun.com. So anything you want to send us, we're going to start um, monitoring and reading them. And then maybe if there's enough, bringing them on air. And this was, uh, Curtis, this was actually Philip's idea. We're doing live ops. So, 
Don't don't open the do- <laughs> don't be- open the door. I can Doors tell you open. don't op- don't open the door to people telling you they want unsolicited that they want to be on the show. Um, you'll you'll a lot of people want to be on the show um, to talk to the audience uh, for, for reasons that you may or may not find interesting. And it, it just well the mail the mail is the closest you can get right now. Like we'll we'll <laughs> post in the show notes. You can pop open an email when you're listening. With whatever you'd like to send, gifts, so address names, them to Phil. Questions. Address them to Phil. <laughs> it's, it'll be a shared email address, so you'll be <laughs> addressing it to all of us. Mail at deconstructorfund.com. Yes, and yeah, maybe we could talk hot topics. Yeah, kind of give feedback about what we should be talking about. Like, what are the big things that we're missing? You know, um, or you could just tell me what an a hole I am. That's fine too. Whatever you want to do. I actually um, have a, a phone number you can text if you would like to tell Eric directly. <laughs> if he mentions you by name on the podcast, just let me know. Yes. <laughs> All right. Speaking of which, Armin, CFO of Activision. I'm ready to go here. All right. This is a quick correction. But as you can see, it's not going to be a correction at all. It's going to be a fuck you to some of those folks <laughs> that are bugging Would me we have this. it any other way? <laughs> so to be clear, I do not know Armin, the CFO of Activision. I don't spend time at the executive level with these people and chat about what's going on out there. Um, I only assume that the CFO of Activision is responsible for the negotiation of one of the biggest deals Activision has with a third party, right? I'm only assuming that Armin, Armin is helping negotiate with their main partner in China, one of the biggest gaming countries in the planet, right? I'm not 100% sure that Simon Zhu from Netties called Armin a jerk. No, but I'm pretty sure it's one of Armin or his minions that Mr. Simon called a jerk. So that, that is a clarification. And the main point I want to make here for people that don't really understand or haven't been in this business a long time is that we are in a war. There has been a war going on since the beginning of Interactive, frankly, for all media in general. It is a war between the creatives and the business people. And it's been going on forever, right? And in my 25 years, I've seen these these battles happening um, on the business side for in all kinds of different circumstances. In the 2000s, 2000s people, the knots, the aughts, not the knots, the aughts, the battle was between EA and the Vancouver Mafia, we called them. It was Bruce, uh, I can't remember his first name, Lee McMillan and Don Matrick headed the studios up in Vancouver and we called them the Vancouver Mafia. And it was against the US publishing organization, which included Frank Jabot and John Riccatello. And the business side won in epic proportion, right? They basically, I think they changed the, our, our, the organization for the better at the time. They focused on fewer franchises, software as a service, and and but I, again, that's what all the winners say anyway. But but this business slash creatives have been going on forever, and it's continuing, right? Between Bobby Kotick and Blizzard, right? Bobby, in a few short years, utterly destroyed Blizzard, right? They pushed out every creative leader in that organization, you know, recreating Blizzard in his own image, right? And this is with the help of Mr. Armin and his McKenzie minions, okay? So, like, again, this is, continues to go on and on and on in this business. Now, some would argue that Blizzard is a better place right now, more contemporary, actually. I've made that argument. 
because I was bitching and moaning about the fact that this was happening. But I also admit the fact is they may be in a better place, but the products are going to be the proof of this situation, right? So to be clear, Armin is more of a symbol. I've never met this guy, nor have I even spoken with them. I've actually heard from a few folks that really respect him. Um, and people that I trust and really I, I like, really like Armin. He's actually a good guy. He's pragmatic and thoughtful. I've also heard that people can't stand being in the same room with him, right? So there's like, it goes both ways, right? But that's not the fucking point. The point is that Armin is a symbol of the business side of gaming. He is a personification allegory. I had to look this one up, right? He's not the boogeyman. He's not the foreman of the po- one of the four, four horsemen of the apocalypse. He's a personification of this archetype that represents the business side of gaming. That's all he really is. I'm not picking on Armin, all right? So no, I do not know whether Simon called Armin a jerk, but I'm pretty sure that the, this creative side lost another battle in this war, right? And as a symbol of the business side, Armin is the jerk, okay? So that's all I want to say on this. If you have any other criticism about this, please send it to mail.deconstructorofun.com. <laughs> and I'll be sure to respond immediately to your to your concerns. All right, that goes out to uh, Mr. Um, never mind. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> I think you guys could understand. That's it. Anybody have any ish- comments or issues? Not not a comment as much as um, or not, you know I've kind of carved out a niche of being the game designer who can talk enough business for the business people and enough game design for the game makers. And it's a hard, it's, it's hard, um, to find the common ground, especially when, when, um, people care so much and so deeply about their products and their games and their communities. It's just, it's, it's a hard, uh, uh, thing to mediate these two sides of the games industry and people who are like super intense, devoted gamers like I am, um, who are in it for the art, and then people who are, you know, Stanford MBA and that ilk and in it for, um, in it as a business. They might like games, but like that's not the main motivator. It's it's a very tough negotiation and mediation, especially in a world of constantly changing uh, business models, where a lot more. Um, business responsibilities are pushed onto the makers than ever before. So I just, I, I guess I, I have empathy on both sides um, of the coin and it, it sucks when um, great creatives and intelligent business people can't find that common ground and work it out. And, you know, just the power negotiations of these sorts of things, as you said, it like, uh, the business side usually wins because they kind of control the power and creatives control their feet and they can move if they're not happy. And, and that tends to um, not work out for the players. That's, you know, that's what's sad about it, I guess. Uh, yeah, that's where it gets really complicated because I would argue that the players are in a better shape than they ever have been in terms of the content that they want, right? Or at least where the number of money is being spent, but whatever. Well, it's I, I, more. I'll, I'll it's, it's when 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 the head creatives of Blizzard leave. You know, it, it's like it's not an immediate effect on the quality of of the games and and the services. But you know, I think people stick with things over time. But it, it, as it starts to deteriorate, they find uh, new outlets for their hobby. You know, and so. Yeah. 
just you know as an i'd love to know what the dau count uh is on overwatch 2 compared to overwatch 1 at a similar point in its life as like a good case study of how it works out like is is the overwatch business model shift working for the players or not i i don't know enough to know no hell no dude all right i mean that (laughs) that's a really good example of them failing miserably right i mean overwatch is like i'm hoping the last like bad launch for for blizzard for a while because i think uh the world of warcraft thing has done well and then i think diablo is going to be amazing and then the then there's also the um sorry i don't want to get too deep into this but there's also the uh survival game that I'm really kind of curious. I've heard good things about. So yeah, Overwatch would be an example of them failing miserably. The business guys failing miserably. Um, um, so, but anyway, I, uh, I just, yeah, I mean, again, I want to be clear. The battles of this has been going on for movies and television and every form of media, like it, fucking music. I mean, music is like a battleground, like epic stories and books are written about this stuff. So there's nothing new. There's nothing like any profound it just is. And that's why when, when I talk about these guys, um, that's that's the angle that I'm talking about. I'm not really I don't really care about Armin, honestly. I just he makes he makes a good demon. He makes a good foil. Foil. Foil's the word you're looking for. I don't know about. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> you prefer demon. I, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to go over the top. You know, foil. This is seems lame. All right. Moving on. I have a quick update. So I've been following, I like to follow a little bit of Square Enix. Um, they, this month, um, they released a game called Forspoken. From the trailers last year, it looks promising uh, because it, it kind of took a new angle on the classic, you know, JRPG a little bit. They have, they decided to put in a very strong female lead. They had a new take on the setup of the adventure. So the hero is actually starting in New York City and ends up in a new world, which I, I look back to some games I haven't seen them done before. And then the, the villains are actually also are female. The reviews have been incredibly mixed. Uh, but I read some of the, I was reading the videos and watching some of the, and um, started reading the, I was watching the videos and reading the articles. Venture Beat pretty much pans it for a lackluster dialogue and character development and rather an uninspiring visual world. The main characters are, were kind of cited as being unlikable in a number of reviews, not just from Venture Beat. Metacritic gave it, I gave it a score of 66 with a few critics that love it and a lot of fans that don't. Um, there is a little bit of positivity around the battle systems um, and the movement systems, which is been cited as called like supercharged parkour. There was a little bit of this in Final Fantasy 15. Um, and if I was to venture a guess, because I did play that game, uh, they took they, that, that response they took and then put it into this game would be. So I had a peek at the decor development team it was directed by uh, Takeshi Aramaki and um, Takiki, uh, Take Fumi, uh, both of which who worked on Final Fantasy XV. They had a very strong writing team, which was um, interesting to read because um, Amy Hennig, one of them, worked on Uncharted. She worked on the story concept. Um, and then they had Gary Witta, who co-developed Rogue One. So they had a super, what, what, I, would, what, what I would call a strong team, um, so I was a little bit surprised about how the reviews were and kind of the, the fan response not really liking the story. So a little bit disappointing. It probably came out maybe a little bit too early. Um, yeah. So I don't have, have any of you played it yet or the demo. No. No, I, but I, I remember, haven't played. 
but reading reading the reviews, it doesn't look like. I mean, it's kind of in the Callisto protocol camp for me, which is like wish list it, wait for it to be on a really low sale, like not a must play, but check it out at some point. You know, I, I saw that like on the positive side, it's a next gen game that feels like a next gen game, but it feels like the mm-hmm. gameplay just wasn't um, wasn't there. Up, oh, you're muted, Eric. This game was not really on my radar at all. Uh, I don't really cover Square all that much, but like maybe I should because they're doing quite well otherwise. But um, the uh, the only thing that's really interesting about this is the demo just sunk this game, right? And this is like an example of like when demos like do the opposite of what you would hope is that once people play the demo, they're like, fuck this. And so I've heard that numerous times. Um, so maybe I should play the demo and then get the, get the feel for it. But, um, you know, just a miss, you know, I guess from from these guys. Phil, Philip, do you want to take the next one on um, the next update? That sounds great. So Metacore has snagged Supercell's Everdale. If you remember, I think it was what four or five months ago, Supercell soft launched a game called Everdale, which was somewhat of a almost like a city builder. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ethan, if I'm describing this incorrectly, but it had a very passive loop. There wasn't a lot of intensity around the core mechanics. At least that's what I can remember from this game. And they've decided to pass it on to one of their investee companies, which is Metacore, most famous for, I believe, is the Merge Mansion games. This follows them also giving some of the Boom Beach IP, although not a game, to Space Ape who had shuttered Boom Beach Frontlines, which was their stab at taking Supercell IP in a new direction. This is giving a game over directly and is something new for Supercell. So I watched the video. So I played this game when it was in soft launch and I took a video of me playing it um, after, just so I would be able to, well, I do this for most games actually, but um, I was trying to think, so... If, if they did this, then either I think Metacore saw something in this game to be able to think that they could turn it around, or I can't think of another... Oh, I'd love to hear other opinions on why why we think they did this. Well, so <clears throat> Supercell, you know, I think, I think it's easy to criticize from the outside. Um, for example... You know, I remember listening to many podcasts about Brawl Stars and the run-up to Brawl Stars launch and its soft launch and its many different pivots along the way. And, you know, the there was some negativity about the strategy and all, but in the end, Brawl Stars worked out and is a great business success and a great game that people love. Um, Supercell has a really high bar for how much revenue it wants its games to generate and what would be a success that most companies would be happy with is not a supercell sized success and you know from my own um development background when i joined the team at network spooky pop which was a supercell soft launch game that got canceled was one of the inspirations for legendary and legendary was a great success for network um but it was not a supercell sized billion dollar a year game and so you know i think it's um i think that it's easy to criticize and go like what is supercell doing here um they're trying to focus their attention on billion dollar opportunities and they have all the resources they need to be patient and uh 
I think that this is a really interesting move to hand it over to one of their partner studios who, you know, I don't, I don't know that much um, about uh, the company or the team, but for them, for their uh, business plans, for their uh, balance sheet, if they can turn this into a 50 or hundred million dollar a year game, that might be a really big success for them. Right. Maybe a 20 million dollar a year game. What do you give the rest of Supercell's portfolio away to their investee companies? Because there's more in the graveyard. Right, it's not just this. Why open it up with just Everdale? Why not just open up the whole casket? Oh, I'd love to take Heyday Pop. <laughs> if, if they're offering, I would love to take Heyday Pop. Right. They did a lot right, and I think I could. Oh, I could tinker with that game. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we've I, been mean talking... I think my my guess is that somebody on the developer end was that excited and made a case for it. Right, like my I I, I mean, this is pure conjecture here, but I don't think that the developer would be doing this if it wasn't something they felt passionate about and that it was a better business opportunity than trying to build uh, an internal, a new internal IP. Right. So my guess is somebody on the developer side was like, Hey, we want this. Here's our pitch for what we're going to do with it. And you know, we don't know what's going on, Phil, for all we know, they are trying to shop payday. They, they are trying to shop payday pop and other games from the graveyard around to their other um, uh, portfolio companies. I guess I I start to ask questions and I will say this is a take that Eric Kress has had that I am reluctant to give you credit for because everyone loves Supercell, right? Everyone wants to work at Supercell. Everyone wants the idea of Supercell to be successful. This idea that it would be a small group of people coming together with very little barriers to express themselves and make something beautiful. And we all want that to work. And that's been challenged in the last five years when they've tried to figure out whether or not they can make their model work with scale. And this to me just does not feel like something you would do in a position of strength. This feels like something you would do in a position of weakness. And even if they're making a crazy amount of revenue per an employee, which they certainly are. So anytime we criticize Supercell, you know, we're, we're taking them down a peg from Everest, I don't know, to, to Mount Kilimanjaro. But even if that's the case, like all these arrows are pointing downward. Even when I look at their investment portfolio and the companies that they've given money to, which again is another admission that you can't take that money and make it more productive inside of Supercell. Like that ultimately is the role of a firm. It's to take a dollar bill and try to make it two dollar bills. So when you're saying that you can't do that no longer effectively relative to investing in other companies, that to me is a, a bad sign. It's a bad sign that you've reached kind of your your, your growth ceiling. I, and so I, I just I, I tr- have trouble situating this in broader context for Supercell. And is you know is this something that that is really something you would do if you're if you're turning things around? M- money isn't the only resource though. Attention is a resource too, right? And so if they are perfectly happy to try and kill a hundred things to find the next Clash Royale, you know, like it doesn't necessarily mean that it, like if they're investing the money in outside companies, isn't that a sign that they've like maxed out the value they're getting from additional dollars inside the supercell machine but so they they're care, looking to they put care about their model where, what they they care about their model right it isn't just about supercell getting fat for themselves they have broader ambitions and i think they want to do more than just make money for themselves they believe that the supercell model is one of the key ways you can make successful games and they've tried to translate that i think to their investee companies and so when i look at things like this i just wonder if there are limits to that model and what can achieve because I, I think they have broader ambitions This podcast is brought to you by Google for Games. 
It takes more than a collection of tools to help you bring your gaming vision to life. With cross-platform solutions that give you access to billions of potential players around the world, Google is your partner to create great games, connect with players, and scale your business. Visit g.co slash Google for games, or go to the link in the podcast description below. And if you ask me, Google for Games is the destination to learn more about game solutions and latest research and insights from Google's gaming teams to help you achieve your goals. If you're not driving or working out while listening to this podcast, I really suggest you fire up that browser and check out Google for Games. Want to know how your results stack up against other gaming apps? Well, now you can. AppsFlyer, the industry leader in measurement and mobile analytics, just released a new tool providing benchmarks on 21 key growth metrics for over 20 categories in 25 markets for both iOS and Android. And it's available now for free at appsflyer.com benchmarks. Yes, you heard that correctly, completely free. In just one click, you can easily compare installs, retention, revenue, media cost, and much, much more. With these benchmarks, you'll be able to get intel on your competitors, set goals based on insights from the top 10% of mobile games, explore new markets and growth opportunities, inform soft launches, and understand market dynamics and trends so that you can adapt your UA strategy accordingly. Over the past seven years, AppsFlyer's industry data reports, trends, and insights have helped thousands of mobile app marketers to excel at their jobs and grow their apps. Trust them, they know their data. Head to appsflyer.com benchmarks now for more info. I mean, my only comment is we're going to talk about Valve in a minute, is that these guys operate in a different way than most other companies where they have complete autonomy and don't have to worry about growth of revenue and EBIT the way other companies do. And so they can actually do whatever model they think is that fits. And I think that, that that's kind of why everyone puts them on a pedestal. But it, you know, I think you're right. I actually kind of think you're right, Phil. I think this is an, obviously they're outsourcing games to other studios that they're acquiring because they don't want to have to deal with it internally because their mo- the, the business model they have set up doesn't work for that, right? And so, this is a way they can, you know, keep I guess that IP alive um, through other studios, and maybe it is a way for them to grow ultimately, you know, through you know, subordinates or whatever. Um, it's interesting. We'll see if they keep doing it. Um, you know, the next update is a really net bad one on my, in my view, anyway. <laughs> It looks like E3 is going to die <laughs> a quick death. Um, the rumors are IGN has some exclusive from sources at uh, in the industry at Xbox and Nintendo and Sony is that the three big ones are not going to be on the show floor um, of E3. Uh, game over, dude. Like <laughs> these guys pull support. It's it, There's no point in going to the show, right? I mean, it's really, there is no point, right? Um, this is a huge bust for the ESA, which is clearly not hold, not not carrying their weight or whatever the expression is. Um, and I think it's bad for the industry, generally speaking. I think I've spoken about this before. I think E3 is more than just an event to get people to, to um, well, it's an event to showcase games, but also to get people together in the industry. Um, but if the big three are not showing up, then I don't think this is an event worth going to, honestly. Um, so... 
you know, Phil Spencer, like a few months ago with his normal, his, 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 his general doublespeak these days uh, is basically said Xbox is on board with the ESA and they want um, a healthy ESA. And they also say we're on board and we want to make sure that everything we are doing everything we can to help make E3 successful. No, you're not. No, you're not, Phil Spencer. No, you're not, right? You're a fucking liar. <laughs> this is just a lie, right? Like, if you want to, you want ESA to be successful and 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 E3 to be successful, show the fuck up, okay? You know, man up and show up, right? Uh, but I think, anyway, I think E3 is all but dead at the moment. Uh, I, I imagine it won't continue. I just can't imagine the ESA can justify the cost and the energy it takes to build and put this thing together when the three major platforms are not participating. Um, so anyway, I do think it's a sad day for the industry. Um, and maybe it's just my, uh, you know, the musings of an old man that been to E3 a gajillion times and just love it. But uh, but I do think it's a great showcase for the content and the, and the industry as a whole for a broader audience. Um, and, and, and that's no longer the case. So instead, what we'll see is tons of digital showcases from the big three, which I think is cool too. You know, Nintendo, Microsoft, and Sony will have their own showcases. EA will have their own showcase. So will Ubisoft. Um, and so that will kind of like replace it. And maybe they'll be staggered. It won't be all at once uh, the way E3 was. But I think that's probably what will ultimately replace it. Uh, any thoughts? Just as a... <clears throat> enthusiast gamer i get more value from the digital showcases that are spread throughout the year right because each thing gets its gets its time to shine on the front page of ign and on reddit and on twitter and it's not the glut of like when when 200 trailers come out in a day in three days i can't watch them all um and so like i personally get more value since e3 isn't really a consumer event you know, there was the like there's the generating hype for consumers and then the, you know, selling discs to Walmart side of the event. And if that can be if that hole is filled with other activities, then it's just a sign that like the E3 conference business model did not evolve with the changing times. But like I much prefer, you know, uh, a Koei Tecmo or NIS feature day in the middle of February where I can watch these trailers for obscure JRPGs and they're, you know, uh, uh, and they're not buried. They're actually elevated, uh, but they're not buried under news of even bigger players. So like, you know, as a gamer, I, I like the digital showcases. Right. And that, that, that is exactly the point of view of Microsoft, EA, Activision, Take-Two, et cetera, all these publishers. I, and I, I don't disagree with that at all. Right. I think as a gamer, you don't give a fuck about E3. Right. That's not what E3 was about, right? E3 was a business meeting between, um, you know, production and, and retail and and investors. But I think what what what's missing from this is the fact that it, it was also a showcase of the industry itself to a broader audience, right? Where at USA Today and Wall Street Journal and New York Times were writing articles for a, a full week about the gaming industry, kind of showcasing how big and how far it's come. And maybe maybe some people would argue that's not necessary anymore. Everyone knows Do you the think game the Games huge. Awards kind of fill that hole? Yeah, they help. But again, I think that's relatively niche. But I mean, it is growing pretty, pretty well. Gets but, a lot uh, of streams. 
It's a lot of streams. Yeah, again, you're talking gamer, right? right. You're ta- not talking mainstream. You're talking gamer, right? There's there's two different market or reasons. So I just don't think we have that kind of event anymore or that kind of coverage that you can get from a big event like E3. Um, but again, like I can I could argue both ways, right? But I, I you know, you would hope that uh, um, they could figure out like a, a way of doing both, but probably not. And it's expensive. The, it's the, sad to see sorry. these go. <laughs> yeah. It's, the the yeah. final thing is like shared I, moment from the, from, the, from the company perspective, it is such a pain in the ass to get all these people down there in the midst of development in June, right? To like pull out a, a you know a, a a working prototype demo to, to display. You know, it's like it is a pain, right? I mean, there's no doubt that it is is painful. Um, so there, it's not inconsequential in, in from the development perspective, but, uh, but anyway, it is what it is, I guess. Um, rest in peace. Yes. Uh, criminy. I don't, why is everything so goddamn negative? This was, there's a lot of, of, yeah, there's a lot of negative news. This, yeah, this so, cycle. So I'm not going to talk about this too much because, but EA basically falls on weak forecasts. So I'll, I will tell you this though. I got this fucking dead right, by the way. Just saying. All right. Uh, with, with the clients. But um, so basically they came out and saw said that they had a weaker quarter than they expected. Um, primarily related to Apex, which has been getting its ass handed to it by Call of Duty. Uh, but also it's because... It's not that of, bad. We, oh, believe me. It's bad. It is bad. It is bad. Like, sorry. And so... Uh, FIFA was doing fine, I think, with the World Cup, and Madden was 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 good, but they just Apex just destroyed them, and then Mobile was also just an absolute train wreck so, of epic proportions. And sadly, on top of that, they're basically canceling or pulling Apex from 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 the store, um, and then also uh, canceling Battlefield. And uh, the guys in Pasadena are gonna um, get let go as well or move to other things. So. Anyway, this, this is not looking good for the shooter market on mobile, just saying, um, as we've been talking about for a year now, uh, like how bad the shooter market's become. Um, actually, what's funny is I got totally called out at a uh, meeting at GDC last year about shooters underperforming uh, when I was giving a presentation. And that's when, obviously, I looked into it. But anyway, the point is, is that um, it's kind of a red ocean out there for shooters. And the only one that's coming that, that is interesting in my view is the call of duty one, which is we'll see if they can differentiate themselves by tying themselves to the, uh, uh HD version. So we'll see. So back to EA. Um, basically what happened is they torpedoed guidance, right? Which basically means that they're never going to make what they said they were going to make. And they pushed out star Wars to next year. And so in essence, what they're doing is they're kitchen sinking this year so that next year looks better. Because what happened, what's really happening is next year looks like shit, right? They didn't have anything next year. So now they move the Star Wars game over to next year and next year looks better. So they torpedo this year, make next year looks better. And so they can move on with life, right? So rather take the pain now than take the pain later, right? That's the kind of thing that they're doing. They're doing... Don't look over here, look over there type thing. Um, so anyway, what really needs to happen at EA is Respawn needs to make more fucking games and Bioware needs to make more games and they need to figure out game, non-sports games at EA and they have to figure out what to do with mobile. Um, it looks like it looks like they are completely 
I can't, I, I don't even want to say this, that they're divesting out of mobile. <laughs> it's like, is there de-incentivizing mobile again? I, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do with mobile, but it's a mess. Um, I have a question. But, uh, yep, go ahead. On, on the shooter part, maybe you know this from um, the, the look at it you took. Like, is it, is it that the total revenue and audience is uh, between Fortnite, Garena, and Call of Duty Mobile and PUBG? Like, did those games already win and EA uh, took so long, you know, with the kind of Kodak dilemma of bringing their franchises to mobile that they can't um, compete with people who've taken the market? Like, is it that shooters overall as a category are down or that yes. uh okay so it's that the revenues from those even existing hit games um are shrinking right but but it's still a combination of both right mm-hmm. i mean apex is a super hardcore shooter on mobile like it's right. not like easy to pick up and play the way other like call of duty and others are like arena you know but what i would say is that the the TAM, total addressable market for shooters on mobile, has probably declined since the, the 20s and 21, right? And so there's just too less many kids in school, basically. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're <laughs> kids are at home from COVID. And so they're that. frolicking in the sunshine, or nowadays, like frolicking in the frost, right? Um, but yeah, I just don't think that people are, are, are playing as much and certainly not as engaged as they were. And I think that, um, yeah, and that. And Apex, I mean, I can make some other arguments about Apex. I think they over-designed it, and they, I don't think they had a really good monetization scheme because what Apex should have been is a game that catered to a super core pe- group of people and had deep monetization design, and I just don't think it had that, right? right. I, think, I, think they, I think they dumbed down the monetization too much. It was like, it was like over-PM'd, I think, is what I've been told by numerous people. Um, and sorry, uh, what's his name? Uh, Giovanni. <laughs> Giovanni Ducati, uh, who, by the way, just made a move to Warner of all places, which is random. Um, but anyway, so uh, yeah, I think it was over, 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 over PM'd uh, to some degree. I think it could have been successful. And they spent, I mean, I can't even imagine how much money they lost on this in terms of from development to marketing. I mean, it was, it, it, this, this is not a good project for EA. Um, and so cutting bait makes sense to some degree. Um, because it was an amazing game. Oh, and then, oh, sorry. You also have the third party issue, right? This is not just EA, right? This is like a third party that built the game, right? And so you still are paying them and they need to support it. If there's not enough revenue generated, there's no way that they're going to continue to support it. So they probably know that as well, right? Um, anyway. Uh, so like the, the I, message many of us got out of Call of Duty's launch is that twin stick shooters could work in the West. That you could yeah. put two, your, both of your thumbs on the screen at one time and you can move around, you can shoot. This was like early free to play was experimenting with some of this because we were just copy and pasting stuff. And then you looked at Fortnite and you say, okay, wow, Fortnite dual stick shooter, that works. Okay, Genshin is starting to play with dual stick stuff and more kind of HD style gameplay in mobile. Okay, maybe there's something here. Is that the wrong lesson to have taken from Call of Duty? Is, the, is that, did they already fill in the gap that they created? This idea that, you know, you could be a Western gamer, you could sit on the couch and have a one hour session with Call of Duty Mobile. I don't think we knew that before this game. Uh, 
it's kind of lightning in a bottle type thing, right? I think it was a time and a place. Although Garena did well when they pushed it as well. Maybe it's a UA problem. I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm, I, I didn't get that deep into it about why, the why of it all. It's just that it's happening, right? I mean, but it, of course it's happening everywhere. You know, every, I, I was looking at publishers. Holy shit, dude. Every single publisher, every single publisher, except for one, I think, had a terrible year in 2022. Every single one. And we're talking double digits mostly, right? Like this is, you know what I mean? Like the fundamentals of this business are shit, right? And so it's like, I know everything is going to suffer. I, I think it was a it? 6% decline. So I don't, I don't know if we're in shit territory, <laughs> but, I, but I saw some numbers that were saying maybe we're 6% down year over year. Like that doesn't, no, no, that doesn't no. look saying, like awful fundamentals. Oh, no, no. That's really bad. The, when the game, we've been talking about this for ages. The business has been up 20% a year for the last decade, right? And when you're down six, that is dramatic, right? And when all the established players, as I said, are down double digits, you know, like that's bad, right? That's really bad. I think it was Dream is the only one that was up. You know, Diablo obviously did well as well. But like, no, it's like, it's pretty dramatically bad, you know? And shooters are down like, I don't know, I think I can't remember, like 20, 25% or something year over year. Um, and it's just, yeah, it, we're in a tough, tough situation, right? There's mobile discovery is bad. People are just not as, as, as engaged as they have been. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing the full-on deconstructing first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. Recent changes in the app stores are boon to mobile game developers. Now you can sell in-game items and currencies with big savings on transaction fees. And Exola just added three new features to their web shop for mobile game solution to help you level up your monetization practices outside the app stores. The three solutions are subscriptions, analytics, and promotions. Now, subscriptions are a smart add to your mobile revenue strategy. They boost game revenue with predictability while maintaining a lawyer user base. Analytics give you data, and data has become fuel on which modern society runs. If you don't know your players, you won't know what they want or how to get them to click that buy button. Analyze your data so you can create critical piece of the purchasing puzzle. 
Finally, promotions allow you to easily reach out to opt-in players via email or Discord and other channels to bring them to your web shop on your website. You'll be able to generate new sales and keep more profit. To find how to get started, visit exola.pro slash mobile or go to the link in this podcast description. So Phil, anyway. to your, your idea, I mean, I think that um, I wouldn't look at these cancellations and say twin stick shooters don't work on mobile, right? I would actually look at it and say, all right, there's a whole generation of gamers being raised on Fortnite, Roblox, and, you know, COD Mobile, PUBG, um, that there's a whole generation of gamers for whom they expect their big hobby games that take up all their time and attention where they hang out with their friends to be free and cross-platform. And that that's who's growing up and demographically as they get into their 20s and 30s and their buying power increases, that's what they are going to expect. They're not going to mentally grow up from you know, mobile games to their big adult console games. Actually, what they're going to expect is live service cross-platform parody where they can jump in um, whether they're on any device and play with their friends and have an equal experience. And that um, that I think is going to be their expectations and that maybe what that'll mean is more um, that, I mean, just like a tra- less traditional console game right or console exclusive um less single player um and also less success of what i would call more activity games on mobile as opposed to like gamer games right like they're going to expect the depth and gameplay and controls um so that's that that would be my hypothesis um you know roblox uh people kids kids who grew up on roblox and fortnite are going to expect um, that same play pattern as they grow older. Not a good look, I would say. Unfortunately, though, for our two our two former deconstructor fun hosts, though, who are, from my understanding, both working on something in the shooter category. Maybe yeah, they've not they've, cross-platform. Not cross-platform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but I I think I agree with you, Ethan. I, I, what, what's interesting is to see whether the Call of Duty Warzone game that Call of Duty is working on is going to be successful. Now they have some fucking huge headwinds right because they're gonna have to deal with freaking uh tencent right and they're not gonna let sit sit there and and let them you know take share away from them they're they're gonna do some insane blast the same way they did with PUBG. but other than that if it ties in with warzone um hd i think that's interesting uh which is supposed to in some way i haven't really looked into it um all right moving on um amazon I'm going to try to, I'm going to make a positive spin on this one somehow, right? So Amazon basically uh, is buying the rights for Tomb Raider for $600 million. Um, evidently, they had the rights to distribute this, this new Tomb Raider game before. So for some reason, Embracer bought these franchises without the rights to publish the games, which I, I, I always question what the hell is Embracer thinking, you know, but I think I said it at the time. Anyway, so... Actually, the positive spin here is that Amazon acquiring this, they may actually do something with this franchise, right? If they create movies and television and series and games and everything, like actually this could be a really good thing for Tomb Raider because I just do not have any faith that Embracer would have that kind of, like make that kind of investment. So 
in a sense, if you are a fan of Tomb Raider, this is probably really fucking great news is that Amazon is going to do something with it. Um, but again, like I, the, the, yeah. Okay. Maybe I'll just leave it at that. I bring a positive spin. Um, any, anybody have any comments on that one? All I can say is that HD trilogy of Tomb Raider games were great. Um, and if this means more budget to make more games like that from that talented yeah. group, I'm all for it. You know, oh, those games franchise. were phenomenal. Yeah, it's a great franchise. Um, and those, it's a great development team, too, um, in terms of building those things. All right, next one, Sony slashes PS, PlayStation VR headset. By the way, is my predictions already coming true in the first month of the year? Right? I mean, this is, like, unbelievable, right? Uh, so, <laughs> anyway, so this is actually a rumor. And actually, Sony basically said that this is not I think they said this is not true, but uh, it says that higher price is a limiting factor for wider adoption and sluggish demand is exacerbating lack, lackluster momentum for VR sector. Something like that, right? Look, it's very simple, right? This is a very simple equation. No content, no interest, okay? You need to be a content first product. You cannot be a hardware first product in this market. It's really that simple, right? So. Get the content locked and loaded that is super compelling that people want to play and then people are going to buy your fucking hardware, right? Because it is an amazing piece of hardware, by the way, just to be clear. But the content is crap. And so you cannot drive interest for a $500 device with no great content. End of story, right? End of story. And I want to thank, um, I did talk to Candice, the ex New Zoo analyst yesterday. I went to lunch with her and uh, and uh, she uh, basically said, uh, you have to be content focused, not hardware focused. Content first, not hardware first, and that will that will make it make it happen. Um, that's it. Prediction live number three games? coming true. Are there live Is service that? games for this at all? Is there anything for VR that's live service? Oh, some of the chat stuff. Yeah, like VR the, chat is probably like the best yeah. uh, use case of VR. Right, that's like, exactly what needs to happen. People like, that. like who who knew people wanted to be sexy anime avatars and talk to each other. That's all. That's <laughs> that's all they want from VR helmets right now. They don't want to live Call of Duty or Mission Impossible. They want to be sexy anime creatures. There is and just there is demand for that. I think in, a, in another um, there's a company that makes uh, digital clothing for the metaverse. I think it's called the House of Blueberry that just received a investment round. I think it's not it's not specifically for this VR, but I believe it's for Roblox. So there is there is demand for creating and having some sort of avatar and then dressing it up for sure. I'm uh, debating whether I need to make Crest a shirt for GDC that it, I'm, I'm debating between what was Embracer thinking or alternate shirt, I was right, and then just a list of things that are mice nuts on the back. I think you should make both so he can wear he can, each yeah. determining like what the topic is and who he's talking to. <laughs> I, ha this I, 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 I have my mice nuts sweatshirt that i'm gonna be wearing at gdc for sure nice. so I, I can i can add it to the uh wardrobe <sighs> all right i think we've got some time to cover this valve 
All right, last article up. We have a new report from People Can Fly. This is a YouTube channel. I believe I'm saying their name correctly. They formally did a couple pieces on Roblox. You might remember um, doing some investigative reporting. And what they did is they looked into Roblox and they they made some claims about how Roblox is currently functioning and how appropriate that is for the type of audience that plays Roblox. And so they're back with another new investigative piece into Valve. And this appears to be based on one or two sources that they may have spoken to. It's kind of hard to figure out what the new information they were able to gather is. But it's information that is consistent with some other reports we've seen intermediately pop out of Valve. It looks like Fort Knox when you go into Valve. A lot lot goes in, not a whole lot comes out. And so they were able to do some similar research looking on just like gas, glass doors. And there was a Y Combinator piece that came out a, a while ago with, a, you know, with someone who claimed to be a former Valve employee. And it's kind of what we've known about how Valve is structured, which is very different than other companies. Gabe, who is the founder of Valve, is very much a libertarian. He's spoken at the University of Texas, Austin, on a lot of spontaneous order topics, which is something that's very closely associated with an economist named Hayek. And so he's tried to model his company after a spontaneous order. So if you're an employee at Valve, you have this desk, you can unplug your desk, and then you can join any other team you'd like to with no permission needing to be asked. When you walk into Valve, you're handed this famous handbook, which you can find online. Maybe we can have a link to it in the show notes. That gives you very little instruction, except to tell you that you have very little instruction and that you have to go figure it out. And so what the report tells us is a lot of the complications that come with a structure like that. And I think it's something similar when we start to think about Supercell and how they're structured with very little hierarchy and very little bureaucracy, which is that, you know, even in even without, um, you know, prices, which is generally how we think about markets, you know, doing well or doing poorly, we're able to use prices to make decisions. When you think about an internal employee system, we don't really have prices. It's hard to figure out who's doing well and who's doing poorly. And so we have to think about ways that we can solve that problem and, you know, attribute revenue to given employees or figure out some ways to reward them in comparison with how we thought they've contributed to the bottom line. And so Valve appears to use stack ranking, which is a controversial method of a couple of employees getting into a room. It's not clear how these employees are selected, reviewing a series of resumes with people that who knows how you have a relationship with them in Valve. How do we determine, you know, who should be reviewing who in a decentralized structure like this? But then trying to assign some sort of, you know, ranking and then distributing revenue that they've collected during the year based on this ranking. So that's one of the things they kind of double down on. It doesn't look like any part of Valve is suffering in terms of compensation, though. From what I can tell, they have a barber on site. They do a paid trip to Hawaii. Um, They seem to be very much interested in, in living the good life. So I don't think anyone's suffering. But it is interesting to see that pop up as another topic. I think we also saw a lot of reports that Valve is not doing the best when it comes to hiring people that look like the community of gamers that play the games they play. So when it comes to thinking about expanding the pool of female and minority employees, the sources in this piece did not sound like progress has been made on that front either. But I'd say more than anything else, I think this type of... I think failure, if we were to revisit where Valve has been, at least from a creative standpoint, it's been pretty much a failure for the last 10 years. (laughs) They've really locked themselves into becoming almost a research institution. You look at the type of hires they have. I mean, one of the first game economists 
ended up being hired by Valve. He was a consultant. He ended up going to Greece during their Eurozone crisis and helping lead them lead through that disaster. But he didn't he didn't really publish that much in the terms of useful information. You know, he was looking at the TF2 economy, trying to solve for what these keys were worth. Didn't do much. And I kind of look at that as an example of Valve's inability to produce valuable content. They seem to be getting fat off of Steam and their 30% cut. And even when there are threats there, they've been able to successfully fend them off. I mean, we saw recent reports that even though you're going to have a thin client for many of the launchers, you're still going to be getting that game ultimately through Steam. So we saw Modern Warfare 2 come back to Steam, and we also saw EA come back to Steam with a lot of their key franchises, although you still have Origin in the background. That, to me, is still a success for the Steam marketplace. So you know, as much as we'd love to criticize Valve, and it's ultimately because I want to see them make great games again, they're getting fat off this platform. <laughs> it doesn't look like that's going to appear to change anytime soon. I, I I have a hard time saying that they've been a creative failure. I mean, they're they're doing things differently. CSGO is still one of the biggest games in the world. Their store is the best distribution point for PC games and has a massive worldwide market. And like I you know, I I I've I haven't talked to anybody who's inside Valve, but you know, I'm trying to channel what I know of the culture book and say, well, the reason you uh, don't have Half-Life 3 is because our employees don't want to build it to the level that we're ready to launch it. And like, I want Half-Life 3 more than almost any other game other than like more Ratchet and Clanks. But I mean, what they're doing works. And, you know, even Half-Life Alex was from all review scores, a great game, even though I haven't played it. And like they've got a great live service game and a great platform. And so I think they would say uh, you're hearing reports from disgruntled employees who are willing to talk to journalists and like it's up to our employees what gets made and what doesn't. And if enough of them believe in Half-Life 3, Half-Life 3 will come. But they're not in a position where they are required to make Half-Life 3 in order for their business to thrive. But the, 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 the fundamental thing is they're not a game developer anymore, right? They're a platform. Right, they own the platform. More power to them, dude. They're making they're they're making cash hand over fist. Right, they've got acquisition requests from like a gajillion people, including Amazon, a hundred times. You know, but they're not selling because they're just sitting on this like cash cow. There's no incentive for them to make Half Life. They're not a game developer. That's I think people assume that they're still a game developer. They are not. They are just not. And and they are just an amazing successful platform. And they actually are seeing more success now as people come back to, to back to the platform after trying to do it on their own, right? And um, what do you think the rev split is between their ability to take that thirty percent cut versus the sales from their first party games like CS:GO and Dota? Well, I mean, they don't have to pay the thirty percent. <laughs> well, I, well, I mean, sure, but like, I mean, they they have two main sources. Are you asking of revenue, what right? percentage of the company's revenue comes from the Steam platform versus from? Oh, it's pub, like ninety nine. Yeah. So, so, so even though CSGO is consistently the, the top game on the platform and Dota has been in a great place for 10 years, you think just in terms of revenue, it's all just mice nuts? Uh, no, I wouldn't say it's mice nuts. I would just say it's uh, maybe it's like 80% from third party and 20% from first. I mean, I'm just guessing. I have no idea. But like, I mean, it's important and they're running those games, right? But that doesn't mean they're a game developer. That means they're a live ops developer, right? <laughs> not making games so um yeah 
And, and again, I mean, to, the guy, the guy's amazing. Like what he's accomplished has been amazing, but they've also had tons of failures, right? Like, yeah, I was, I was just machines. about to stand for valve again. Like you could have in the middle of it, looked at steam link and steam OS and all the attempts at physical hardware and gone like what failures, how stupid. And eventually it got to the steam deck. I love the steam deck. It like fills a hole in my life, um, of being a device I really needed and after years of basically not buying games on Steam, it has increased my attach rate of PC and Steam games. You know, a thousand. I've bought so many PC games in the past year after years of only buying PlayStation games. Right. I, you know what? And that is exactly the argument of why it makes sense. Right. It does not make sense for a mass market device or expanding the audience. It is definitely a re-engagement tool for for people like you who have yeah. fallen off that now have this new fancy device that they can play games on the go and it, it represents like a fraction of a percent of a percent of people that are interested in pc gaming but it's it's probably good for the platform but i think it's more of a proof of concept as, a, as opposed to a real business um and and but we'll, we'll you know we'll see how how, how far it goes so it, it would almost um make sense to look at all of the steam published games as dog food for their real business, which is their, uh, uh, platform and their platform has been more success. So successful that they only need to, uh, eat more dog food when they've got a new thing to build. Right. And that's why you're not seeing half-life three, but you did see half-life Alex for their, um, uh, VR and why you're seeing aperture desk job, you know, for steam deck. Well, they also lost a ton of developers because that was not their priority, right? Mm -hmm. Over the years. So, I mean, yeah, it looks like, so I just pulled up to see what their last releases were. It looks like they were releasing a lot of games per year in the early two uh, thousands. And then that's declined greatly in the past 10 years. So like, so yeah, they're not, it doesn't look like they're releasing as many games for sure. It's all but about I, the aughts. It's all about the aughts in this podcast. It's about the 2000s. I, it's interesting though, because if, if the culture of Steve, of uh, Valve is that you can roll your desk anywhere, then it, you could almost, I, I would almost take that as maybe the Steve, the employees themselves are not necessarily, are seeing the value in maintaining more of the platform than the games. Because theoretically, you could be like, I want to make more games. I'm just going to go do that. I want that to be the answer. I want that to be, you know, we have this huge opportunity cost. And so it doesn't make sense to allocate our resources towards making games. We can make other things that are more valuable. And I, I thought that's what they were doing. Like they've been trying to build these self-perpetuating institutions because they're always 10 steps ahead of everyone else. Right. So one of them was the early access program. That's been incredibly valuable from a platform perspective. Then they had the Steam Marketplace, which has kind of been a failure. Like what games have adopted the Steam marketplace outside of Steam's core IP and franchises? Like they should have been Web3 before Web3 with the marketplace. And so they haven't they haven't really built or capitalized on that outside of their own ecosystem. The source engine, I mean, its biggest win seems to be Apex is struggling to use it and is trying desperately to get rid of it. <laughs> and it's constantly faced with the challenges of using it. And so I think about a lot of their big institutional bets. Uh, they have the mod work uh, mod workshop. I mean, they have people now making content for them in their key franchises. Like they've solved that problem. Like let's just outsource it to to people and give them a cut. 
So they've been good at those things, but they failed to expand those things beyond their own games and tools. And that to me is really disappointing if it is an opportunity cost problem. So at least work on that stuff rather than the Steam Deck or Steam OS. You know, they, because um, what they brought on, I remember when they brought on Kim Swift, they brought on, um, his name escapes me right now, but the Far Cry 2 creative director. They had a bunch of high powered, successful creative directors come internal. And um, making games is really hard. Convincing people to do the work to make the games is really hard. And uh, sometimes when you're a leader, you have to, um, your only uh, tool is a tool of power, right? Which is like, you do this or you get fired, right? You come in this weekend to crunch so that we can get our E3 demo together or you're gone. That's life, right? That's life at this developer. Um, And I'm not accusing any of those people of that, but getting a big, but getting any size game made through only soft power is really hard. And especially if you're thinking about like trying to make an Assassin's Creed style game with only soft power is a nearly impossible task, right? When anybody can go, well, you know what? Ethan's being a fucking jerk. So I'm going to wheel my desk over to this game and I'm going to stop working on Ethan's game because, yeah, his vision was cool, but he's a terrible leader or this project's never like it's just really, really hard to make games. And especially if you uh, come from somewhere or your tool has been a tool of power to get people to do that, you know, if if those tools go away, then it makes sense why it's like nearly impossible uh, to bring a game to market. And so I can I could see, you know, not that anybody's ever given me this opportunity, but I could picture how going from a different development environment, coming into Valve, trying to build something awesome and just going like, nobody's doing what I tell them to do or what I want them to do and getting frustrated and leaving to go somewhere else where that um, is the name of the game. Making games is really, really hard. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think that's it for today. Reach out mail at deconstructoroffun.com. <laughs> Love the plug. Any there we go. Any comments or questions. Um, and we will see you guys next week. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructoroffun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.